gift it is to take stock of the things that truly matter and to have a friend or companion who helps us to locate or relocate our soul's home when we feel lost or ready to be found. For it is through the life examined that we live our purpose and through the life examined that we find that our purpose, our soul's purpose, links us to one another in profound ways. We all know that this work is as old as the hills. So instead of quick fixes, we're highlighting the spiritual practices that shape us and sustain us personally and collectively. These practices are rooted in our traditions and in our shared experience of being human. Won't you join us? Today, contemplation. Howard Thurman's image is centering down. The practice of uncovering our life, of unraveling and holding the threads of our own lived experiences, and finding that singular thread that is woven back to God's self. Or as Dr. King says, reflecting later on the same theme, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Spiritual direction is kind of a misnomer because we are taught, at least in the Christian tradition, that we're not there to direct anyone. There is a third chair in the room. That's one of the symbolic ways of looking at spiritual direction. And that third chair is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the real director of the session. Today is part one of my conversation with spiritual director and guide, Therese Taylor Stenson. Therese is a member of the Shalem Society for Contemplative Leadership. She is also the founding managing member of the Spiritual Directors of Color Network and the editor of the award-winning collection on the emancipative properties of holy listening. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. In this episode, we talk about how Therese shares time with her own soul circle, and we discuss her forthcoming book on Harriet Tubman and the critical relationship between contemplation and action. Let's jump right in. Therese, welcome to the podcast. I'm really grateful to have you here and have this chance to center down together. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. You used the phrase to center down from Howard Thurman. It made me think of my emotional emancipation circles. I'm in an intensive right now, and we are doing an exercise where we call our soul circle to be present with us. And Howard Thurman is one of the members of my soul circle. So thank you for having me today. And hopefully Thurman and the rest of my soul circle will surround me as I work on this podcast today. What an image. I love that. You know, in all the years I've been around spiritual people, I've never heard that exact phrase before and just that conjuring of the image of the people who are dearest to your soul in your presence. I wonder if you have other people in your soul circle that come to mind in this moment. My grandmother, Harriet Tubman, some friends that I have, some people whose writing I respect, their work, my mother, who is also deceased. We were doing conjuring our soul circle around us at our last meeting, and I was remembering while doing that some people I have two kinds of relationships with. There are some things that are good and some things that are bad, but the person that was leading us told us that even the people we may not see 
everything good in them. If they give us some things that are good for us, we can bring them into our circle. Mm. Then I learned it made me feel good about bringing Thurman into my circle, that in African tradition, community is very important, and they don't really make a lot of distinction about who are family members like perhaps we do here in the United States, or other places where if you're not a close relative, you don't really claim relation to the person. Mm. But they said that anybody that has influence over you and moves you, and if they come into your circle and you welcome them there, then you're related to them. That's beautiful. It's a powerful thing to think about and contemplate. You told me the other day that a lot of times in these conversations you have as a spiritual director, that people come thinking during that session that they're going to become more deeply involved with themselves and maybe to find out what their true calling as a human is. I was struck by that because you also said Those may be the expressed goals of a session between you and the person that you're directing, but it's not necessarily your metric for what a fruitful session is. And I wonder if you would paint us a little bit of a picture of spiritual direction and what happens during a session and how is that different for you from other kinds of conversations? Spiritual direction, the words themselves, direction in particular, are kind of a misnomer, at least in the Christian tradition. Spiritual direction in some form has been around for millennia. Mm. In the Christian tradition, spiritual direction has become the more common term for what we do. Other words have been used such as soul friend or spiritual guide or spiritual coach. Spiritual direction is kind of a misnomer because we are taught, at least in the Christian tradition, that we're not there to direct anyone. There is a third chair in the room. That's one of the symbolic ways of looking at spiritual direction. And that third chair is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the real director of the session. Both of us coming to the table or sitting in the chairs across from each other Currently, it's over the computer, sitting across from each other, having a conversation, maybe some silence or something that brings us to our intention in the room. We are leaning on the spirit to guide our conversation, and the spiritual director, spiritual guide, spiritual friend, is listening to the person who has trusted them with their thoughts and feelings and looks for the spirit to guide how they respond to that. When I was in the spiritual guidance program being formed as a spiritual director, silence was important. Because I've had more than one spiritual director myself, and I know other spiritual directors, there are spiritual directors who say very little. They just simply listen to the person. I'm not that person that just listens. Mm -hmm. And this didn't just come immediately. At first, I, of course, tried to do it the way I was taught to do it, but I learned from trial and error that people do want to feel empathy coming from the other person. And so having some kind of response, I think, is important. Letting the person know that you're hearing them, letting the person know that you're not somebody above them, but you're another human being who has some 
of their experiences. So I talk. Yeah. And I share things that come to me almost like I'm doing now, actually. Mm -hmm. In the midst of that, I do also say to my directees, if they need me to just listen or if they need some silence, they can call on the silence. It's their session and it's their discernment that's most important. So they do have the ability to ask me to be quiet and to let them talk <laughs> or to listen to them or to even just have some moments where we pause. I start out my sessions with silence for most people. Everybody cannot be in silence. Mm -hmm. Some people are carrying trauma and silence is not comfortable for them. Mm. And so that has to be respected. Yeah. Generally, I start out with silence if the directee is okay with that. And maybe about five or ten minutes before we end, I ask for silence to just see that our conversation or interaction with one another, something didn't get pushed down because of that. And whatever bubbles up, they might speak it. We may have some words around it before we end. You mentioned the other day that in your experience of God, especially through an African lens, God is a supreme being, that our call to humans from God is that whatever you've received is from God, is from the supreme being, and therefore what you've received that's given to you, you give to your community. It's a gift for you to give back to your community. And you also delineated for me what you would see is the difference between being available to everyone and being someone who must meet each individual need, the incessance of that versus you offering of yourself out into the larger sphere. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, the distinction between hyper-availability and self-offering. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. For me, it is, yeah. And sometimes you can just, as I've been telling people lately, you can just be overwhelmed with good. <laughs> but Jesus said, and I share this with people a lot, this isn't news probably to anybody listening, but Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this part might be something you haven't paid attention to, but Jesus said, love yourself and then love your neighbor. A lot of times we forget about loving ourselves, especially if we're being driven by ego. We're looking to perform or to be accepted or to please other people and have their approval instead of really taking time to discern. What is really mine to do? And you were mentioning some of the ideas I was giving you from the African indigenous perspective. Well, first of all, Africans do believe in God. And there are, as you probably know, many tribes, many languages, many traditions in Africa. But then there is also a common thread, and that common thread tends to be their focus on community. And so God is thought of as the supreme being, and God is not thought of necessarily as someone that you directly connect with. But there are elements. There is God, there are spirits, there are ancestors, and there's the natural world. And there are some humans in the natural world who have been given certain gifts. 
And so those gifts are recognized as the way God cares for us through these other elements, not so much a direct relationship with the Supreme Being. And so in indigenous belief, in indigenous mysticism, we get these things. We are aware that these things are available to us through the spirit, through other people and such. They give us gifts to give to our community. But the idea is not that we get these gifts and then we get put on a pedestal. And now we are great people because we have these gifts or anything like that. But then we use them to enhance our community because in Ubuntu, I am because we are and not because I am this really great person. I am, therefore I am. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. We have so much that we have yet to live into in that. And you struck me with something about contemplation, which a lot of us, when we hear of contemplation, we associate it with a practice of retreat or getting away and sitting and considering our lives, considering our calling. How do you know whether you've just been by yourself or whether it was true contemplation? What's the fruit of contemplation and the end goal? First of all, contemplation is a relatively new term. I don't know if it's new completely to the lexicon of words, mm -hmm. but in terms of spirituality, that's more of a modern term that we use for spirituality, contemplative spirituality. And contemplation is thought of as finding solitude and having deep thought and communing with God and making discernment and those kinds of things. But I was at a spiritual director's international conference, and at least then, this has been a while ago, but at least then at the end of the conference, there was another day, usually a Monday, that we would go to some kind of pilgrimage through whichever city we were holding the conference. So we were in Houston, and there's a place there called the Rothko Chapel in Houston. Rothko is an artist, and his art looks like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so we go into this chapel in Houston. There is an outer part where you enter, and then you go into this round. Mm -hmm. His art supposedly is on the wall, <laughs> but it's mostly maybe some colors, but nothing really written there or even created there. And so you sit there, and I guess that takes you into some sort of form of contemplation. In the bookstore, they don't have a lot of books, but a few books. And one of the books that struck my attention was called Contemplation and Action in World Religions. The editor is Elamaya Zola, and the book is a compilation of essays from religious perspectives around the world, not just Christianity, about what it means to be contemplative. And you know, I can read a whole book and maybe there's a paragraph that I carry with me everywhere. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there was this one chapter called Traditional Methods of Contemplation and Action, where the editor, Elamai Zola, explains contemplation. And I'd like to read it to you because I could give you in my own words, 
but I think he does a much better job of really getting to the point of what I'm trying to convey here. Yeah, please. He writes that contemplation needs both a method and inspiration or practice and response. The Gnostic meaning of tradition implies that we do not seek for novelty. Tradition does not need novelty because it is constantly new. A traditional contemplative method is one that has always been more or less implicitly known and has reappeared periodically through the ages among all peoples because it is inherent in the archetypal structure of contemplative life. And I might say I think that's kind of happening now where we are revisiting contemplative practices in this modern world and with our ills. It's timeless rather than ancient. It is therefore always intrinsically new. He writes, there's a sure sign when a discussion or a stimulation is born of the marriage between method and inspiration. And it's not just aggressiveness or emptiness in disguise. If the discussion gives a sense of peace and leads to greater insight and inspiration, or if, thanks to the situation, a better understanding of the methods gained, then the marriage of method and inspiration holds good. Method and inspiration are joined in contemplative practice, contemplation being the path and inspiration being the action, mm. which is in itself always sacrificial. Zola wrote, When we leave the paradise of contemplation and descend to the earth of action, everything including mystical action becomes sacrificial mm. so that's one encapsulation of his thoughts on that but basically what he says is that the word contemplation is the idea of action and all action is sacrificial so that through contemplation we are given i guess you might say the action that we are to take so that's the discernment process but anybody who is sitting around contemplating and not doing anything is not really being a contemplative. Yeah. You made me laugh when you said contemplation should not lead to procrastination. <laughs> I love that. You know, we see that in the church, certainly, all these spiritual people. And we say, we just need to pray about it more. <laughs> Let's just pray about it or it's too soon to act. Yeah, I hear that all the time. <laughs> we need to pray about it more, or we need to sit with this for a while, or we need to get everybody on board. Yeah. Just think about racism for a minute. If you want to get everybody on board, where would we be? <laughs> what do you think prevents us from moving forward? Procrastination, yeah. I think, comes from a deep place of uncertainty within ourselves. We're not sure of ourselves. We're mm -hmm. not sure we can accomplish something or something feels like more than we can handle, which causes us maybe to put it off or maybe we don't really want to do it. Yeah. So we put it off in some kind of way. Yeah. That's something I'm not. Mm. I'm not a procrastinator. You know, some things are just hard. Mm. And, you know, I find in some of the work that I've been a part of over my life that we want to come up with the panacea, the perfect solution, or the elegant process and say, if we do these things, we'll avoid pain, and won't have to sacrifice. And I've learned to associate that with the evils of white supremacy. Our excuse has been, 
we're praying or we're waiting or we're not ready yet. We haven't found the way to avoid pain or loss or sacrifice. And in the way of contemplation, as you said, necessarily leads to the giving forth of oneself. Also, we use our discernment to decide what is ours to do mm. rather than procrastinate because procrastination may keep the person who's supposed to be doing something from doing it because they're waiting for you to do it. Yeah. So we just say, no, it's, this is not for me, so let's pass it on to you. You've been at work <laughs> on a book that's now in the copy editing stage that is a work centered around your ancestor, Harriet Tubman. As a mystic. A public mystic. A public mystic. Yeah. How did you discern, how did that become clear that this was yours to do? Oh, (laughs) actually, Harriet Tubman is someone that particularly, I think in the black community, she's part of our soul circle. Yeah. You know, she is someone that just about everybody talks about. At the same time, I think in many ways, she's been underestimated. Now there are about 30-some books out there, biographies of Harriet Tubman, but none of them really talk about what really drove her and her spirituality, Mm. her ability to hear from God, her sense of importance that she do for her community. Now, the word public mystic is coined by Barbara Holmes, Mm. who wrote books such as Joy Unspeakable. She coined the term because in African indigenous traditions, as we mentioned earlier, what you do in the world, you do for others. And what you do for others, you also do for yourself. The idea is not that you keep them to yourself or that you get put up on a pedestal because you have particular gifts, but how the gifts you have are used to uplift your whole community and your identification with that community. So because of that, Barbara Holmes calls people who are mystical, who are paying attention to the spirit and moving in the spirit, but are doing things in service of the larger community, public mystics. Would you share something special about Harriet Tubman that you've learned in your relationship with her and your writings about her? I'm an emotional emancipation circle facilitator. Yeah. And actually, Harriet Tubman, as I mentioned, is spoken of in the black community by everybody. So I'm not the first person to talk about Harriet Tubman. Right. But Harriet Tubman is also someone who is lifted up in the emotional emancipation movement. And so one of the things in my book that I'm uncovering about Harriet is her internal freedom. As you know, maybe you don't know, she was hit in the head with a two-pound weight at an early age. And that caused her to have what they call narcolepsy. But it was a particular kind of narcolepsy that didn't really cause her to have epileptic seizures. And she didn't really go to sleep. She went into kind of a trance-like state. Mm. And some of the effects of the kind of narcolepsy that she had, they say, has religious overtones sometimes. And she didn't have any control over when these were going to happen. So she might be leading some people through the woods with timber wolves and slave catchers and swamps and rivers and all kinds of things. And I'm imagining that there were probably alligators mm-hmm. in some of those places. She's leading people through the woods and then all of a sudden she goes to sleep, it looks like to them. 
she's not really sleeping. She's actually sort of having dreams of some sort. And then when she wakes up, she says, we have to change direction. We're going in that direction or something like that. And they began to call her Moses. And when the slave catchers were trying to find her, they were looking for a man. They had totally underestimated Harriet Tubman, who was a small, frail woman with narcolepsy, <laughs> who went into trances in the middle of the woods, mm. kind of scaring people a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many people she actually freed is really kind of uncertain. But there is one quote that she said, I freed 1,000 slaves. I could have freed 1,000 more if they had known they could be free. Mm. She knew she could be free. She was free internally before maybe she was physically. And in her journey, she learned a lot about what freedom entailed. And so in the book that I'm writing, it's not really a biography. You will even find that I repeat some parts of her experiences over in some kind of way, as well as adding other people's experiences, including my own to show how she had internal freedom that we all need to find in order to overcome our oppression. And that is of particular importance to people of color and black people, indigenous people. At one point, I was going around National Capital Presbytery to churches teaching Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited in their church school. And some of the churches were predominantly white there are not a whole lot of people of color to speak to, so I had to actually think about how can I make this relevant to people of power as well. Mm -hmm. All of us, I can't really speak for around the world a lot because I haven't lived in those countries, but I know here in the United States, we're all under some kind of oppression. And there are some things that make us less than other people. It may not be color, it may not be as intense as it is with color, and it may not be being LGBTQ, but maybe you're handicapped, or you're too fat, or you're too skinny, or you have freckles like me. I used to be teased all the time about my freckles. You're too tall, you're too short, you don't have a job. You haven't followed the rules of whiteness, all kinds of things that oppress us in this society. And if we can learn more deeply, as Howard Thurman would say, to find the genuine in ourselves, mm -hmm. which is to find our internal freedom, to be in contact with that more deeper part of us and to live from there, then more than half of the struggle of freedom has been fought and won. Mm. And so that's what the book is about, sharing experiences of Harriet Tubman and how I see her internal freedom at work. And then at the end of each chapter is something I call Harriet's Apothecary. This comes from indigenous traditions as well. Mm -hmm. She was using herbs and things from the natural environment to help people that she was taking with her. Babies, you know, to make babies sleep and be comfortable or whatever. I'm not using herbs or anything, but I'm using the term because I'm thinking of other various people who lend toward our internal freedom. So at the end of each chapter, 
there's like a practice for us to try to find that place within us. We will be back next week with the second part of my conversation with Therese Taylor Stenson. In the meantime, you can pre-order her new book, Walking the Way of Harriet Tubman, Public Mystic and Freedom Fighter, published by 1517 Media. It comes out next summer, so you'll have something really special to look forward to if you order ahead. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes of Season 8 of New Way. We're exploring contemplation, silence, neighborliness, the importance of trying new things, and more with our awesome lineup of guests. Whether you're listening along with a group or prefer to keep these amazing episodes all to yourself and to just let the magic flow through you as you live your life, you can subscribe at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, online at newchurchnewway.org, or wherever you do the podcast listening. Thanks for listening to New Way. Our producer is the fabulous Martha Sanders. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Catch you next time.